Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon Shorts, Christian Post, Judgment Day, How Will God Judge Christians Versus Non-Believers? This is another sermon synopsis from Greg Laurie, you might remember the name, Pastor Laurie. A pastor that it just bothers me every time I hear or say the word. You are not some cosmically appointed shepherd over human sheep in holding for a great cosmic judge. But at any rate, <laughs> Mr. Laring. Uh, he was the guy who uh, was musing about why the United States of America was not mentioned in the book of Revelation. <laughs> so, uh, not among the choices, by the way, was that this is a very old book written by people who could not have conceived of anything like the United States of America. That wasn't there. Uh, don't worry about it. Pastor Laurie, uh, now he's going to talk about uh, judgment, because here's a guy who knows a lot about final judgment. Doesn't that sound like, uh, you know, battling a big boss in a video game? Final judgment. <laughs> or, or a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. I mean, Christians have lost the ability to recognize how much of their doctrines sound like children's fantasy novels that are not particularly well written. Let's just pick up a couple of things. For the non-believer, they will face the great white throne judgment, Laurie said. Okay. Great. Like, once again, this sounds like something out of the Game of Thrones. The great white throne. It's in Revelation 20, 15. And we believe that's a literal thing because, you know, it says so in Revelation. A great book for pulling out literal stuff. He goes on to say, and a book is opened. Of course, it's a literal book. You know, things are written down meticulously. I wonder what God's handwriting looks like. <laughs> The book is open, which is the book of life. Will any of us get to audit that book? You know, to see if our names are really in there, but he's not calling it because he's just a jerk. <laughs> I'd like to audit that book. There are no auditors for the book. So what's the point of actually having the book in the first place? <laughs> so uh, let's see. And whoever doesn't have their name written in the book of life, which, by the way, is everybody who's in front of the Great White Throne. <laughs> so, again, the book seems like an interesting piece of stage dressing where God pretends to look at a book and says, hmm, your name isn't in here. <laughs> and so, what do you do at that point? Well, he says, whoever doesn't have their name written in the Book of Life is cast into the lake of fire. Is, is this just a figurative term when Laurie uses it? 
or are we back to the literal lake of fire? Boy, it's hard to keep up <laughs> these days. But that's his fantasy. I mean, he can he can describe it any way he wants to. And he says that's the judgment for the non-believer. That's my comment about the the book show. I mean, if this is how all non-believers are judged, what is the fucking point of the goddamn book <laughs> that no one's name is in? Why? What is this stage dressing really all about? Who is he trying to impress? Is there like a, a camera crew you know, recording the production so that the good people can see it? This is like the last reality TV show. So he goes on to say, that's a judgment for the non-believer. If you end up there, there's no turning back. It's the final judgment. Okay, this, unlike, you know, what I hear from other new apologists who suggest maybe that's not the final judgment. Maybe you do have, excuse me, an opportunity to reform now that you see the truth of reality. You have a chance to reform in the lake of fire. A great place for reformation, by the way. It sounds like a prison. You know, a lot of reformation happens in good old federal prison. Yet they reform from two-bit thieves to really good thieves. <laughs> they go from moderately dangerous to extremely dangerous. I want to wonder what the reformation process is when you're in a lake of fire. But some Christians do believe that you will have a chance to reform, not Greg Laurie. He states in no uncertain terms, because of course he knows this is the end, and there's no turning back. So uh, then he talks about the judgment for the faithful. Once again, I don't really understand this whole judgment thing. Because the faithful are saved and the unfaithful are not. The believers are saved, the unbelievers are not. The forgiven are saved, the unforgiven are not. And so I don't know what the whole theater is about judgment. There's no drama. You know, separated from the left and the right. You can see which sides you're on. Felt good. We're in the safe crowd. What's so? At any rate, uh, God didn't save you. Uh, I'm sorry. God didn't save you, so you would just say, "Thanks for my salvation. I'm going to live my life, and I'll see you later." <laughs> no. So if you are counting on that, you know, going off to have your great adventures, forget it. You know, Pastor Laurie has something else in mind. He says of himself, when I'm saved, I realize God has a plan for my life. Now, my primary purpose for existence is to bring God, uh, I'm sorry, to bring glory to God. So, wow. That's your, that's your purpose. Dale sometimes talks about uh, the ultimate purpose of humans, God bringing as many humans to fulfill their ultimate purpose as possible. If we combine Dale with Pastor Laring here, then the ultimate purpose of humans is to bring God 
glory, a more ignoble purpose I cannot imagine. Your whole job, if I were to tell you that the reason I do this podcast is for people to bring me glory, no one would listen, and you shouldn't. You would think me an awful human being, and I would be. God, the creator of the universe, so much higher than everything he has created. The only purpose that he created our kind of being in the first place is so that we would be his lapdogs and bring him glory. When Christians say this, do they hear what they're saying? I think not. He goes on to uh, talk about uh, them needing to be the first best versions of themselves. I'm going to move down here to what I think the money quote is. Because he kind of repeats himself a little bit. So he starts to talk about um, people who live a good life, thinking that's enough. Let's, let's get a piece of this. Laurie stresses that it's not going to be how good of a life that you live. He's taking issue uh, with the belief that one is saved if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. What is that based on? I have no idea, but it's not the Bible, he says. That's no reason whatsoever to believe something. Uh, there's no reason whatsoever to believe something like that. But so many do believe it. He says it's not the Bible. Has he read any part of the Gospels? Has he read any part of the red letters, especially when Jesus is talking about how, you know, you fed me and clothed me and visited me uh, when I was in prison and so forth. And they say, you know, when did I receive you like this? As much as you've done it to one of the least, you've done it to me. As much as you didn't do it to one of the least, you didn't do it to me. These are good works he's talking about. In fact, pretty much everything he's talking about is some kind of good work or good characteristic that is visible to other people looking on. And he definitely equates these good works as being a part of the kingdom entrance exam, if you will. That's my paraphrase. You can read the Gospels yourself. Laurie says, uh, I would challenge this. Do your good works really outweigh your bad works? <laughs> Where does it get here? Because we had a discussion like this uh, on the board. Hi, Mac. Hi, Brian. Do your good works really outweigh your bad works? Do they really? He says, I don't think they do. I, I just find this a ridiculous thing to say. As if you know that no one's good works outweighs their bad works. Not that he cares whether they do or not, because his position would still be the same. If you lived a life of all good works and no bad works, you'd still be doomed to hell. 
because your good works have nothing to do with saving you. But to avoid saying that, what they say is, you're not so good. You're not a good person. I know for a fact that your good works do not outweigh your bad works. And you can, there's no way can, you can possibly know that. The only way to make that assertion is if you suggest that we as humans have no way of knowing the difference between good works and bad works, which Christians tend to, because their idea of good is not your idea of good. And so all the good you think you're doing isn't really good that God is counting as good. We're going to come back to that a little bit. But I also think there's another reason why Christians, especially a certain kind of Christian, de-emphasizes good works. I think the reason they de-emphasize good works is because Christians aren't very good. I mean, yeah, there are some good people who are Christians who do a lot of good works. I don't, I don't want to be careful how I say it. But the average life of the average Christian is not marked by any goodness that is not also present in the average life of anyone else. There's, there's no differentiation. Humans are very good most of the time. We're social creatures. We kind of have to be for society to work. Society doesn't work based on laws given. Because if everyone was an outlaw, there would be no way to enforce the law. We've got plenty of outlaws. We've got plenty of law enforcement that is done and that needs to be done and that can't be done. But by and large, most of us don't run into problems with the law, not because we didn't get caught, but because we're social creatures and we want to live in a society, you know, that functions. And I don't see any supernatural good coming from Christians. In fact, I see just as much evil coming from Christians. In some communities, more evil coming from Christians. And so it's very, very important for Christians like Laurie to de-emphasize the importance of good works. You're not saved based on good works, because if you were, none of you would be saved. <laughs> it would, would simply be the case. So Laurie added, noting that heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. I love this quote. <laughs> Put this on a bumper sticker. <laughs> heaven is not for good people. This is exactly why, this is where people like Lori have to go. And I would agree. Looking at the average life of the average evangelical that I have met, uh, which is thousands, <laughs> and that when, whose lives I know something about, if heaven is for those people, it's not for good people at all. <laughs> now tell me, why would you want to go to a place that's not populated with good people and be stuck there forever? Because you're right, it's not for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Notice the de-emphasis on a thing that you can see and observe and an emphasis on the thing you can't see and observe. This is Christianity in a nutshell. You know, this is, this is hiding the God again, hiding the miracle. Uh, it's, it's a hidden thing, forgiveness. No one can see forgiveness. So you can claim to be forgiven. 
who who can say you're wrong? You've got some cosmic forgiveness from an in invisible being. Heavens for that kind of person. Now, good people, goodness, we can see. We can see goodness. We can see when you do something good. We can see when you do something bad. We can see what kind of person you are and what kind of life you live. That's something we can see and observe. And so your myth of goodness can be easily falsified. And so the pastor has to say, well, heaven's not about good people. Heaven is not for good people, direct quote. You can see it in the article. Heaven is for forgiven people. Nice. Now, I do want to be fair to Pastor Loring because it's as if he does kind of understand what he just said and he needs to rehabilitate it a little bit. So he says uh, that true believers produce good spiritual fruit. True believers. I... I hear the sound of bagpipes. Uh, a true believer produces good, uh, produce good spiritual fruits seen in the way you live as a Christian. People should be able to see by your fruit, by your actions, by your works, that you are a Christian, Laurie says, okay? So thanks for saying that, I guess. That's pretty important. But notice how that's been so de-emphasized and relegated to almost an afterthought. I also want to note something else. Suddenly, the good works that you were doing all along, when you become a Christian, now those are counted as fruits of the Spirit. You see, a really good person who is not a Christian, the Christian would say, you're not such a good person. You're not really doing good works. And they discount all the good that that person does because they're not a believer. But the moment they convert and become a believer, suddenly they're Mother Teresa. <laughs> they're, all of the things they were doing anyway is now suddenly counted as the fruits of the, the Spirit. They were patient and loving and kind and long-suffering and sober before they became a Christian, but they weren't good. After they become a Christian, all of those characteristics they already had, now fruits of the Spirit, and we can count them as good. Yeah, I, I gave to the poor 50% of my income before I was a Christian. No good. Just a clangering cymbal in a band. No good. Become a Christian. I give 10% of my income to the church. Good person. <laughs> so, um, interesting how Christians, you know, delineate good and bad. But also, you know, the, these good works are after the fact. The lives of true Christians, you should see good works. But the good works aren't what saves you. They're not what saves you. Christians who are drug addicts can still be saved. They were drug addicts before. They, they devote their life to Christ, put their faith in Jesus, uh, repent or baptize their drug addicts after. But now God loves them. <laughs> He's so patient with them. And uh, this, this 
sin slash addiction is something that God doesn't count against them anymore. They're, they're good people now. Um, if they had kicked their drug habit before becoming a Christian, still evil. If they keep their drug habit after becoming a Christian, they're good. Because your good works aren't what saves you. Heaven isn't for good people. <laughs> it's for forgiven people. I might have said something similar to that, but different when I was Christian. I might have said that heaven is not strictly for good people without faith in God. Heaven is for good people who have given themselves over to Jesus and to trust in Jesus, okay? But it's still for good people. You don't want heaven populated by the Ku Klux Klan or the Proud Boys or some other white nationalist group you know, actual Nazis, That's those are not the people you want in heaven. They're not good people. <laughs> Sorry, they're not good people. Um, but, but, you know, if that's what your fundamentalist church is built on, then you need to say something like, ah, don't worry about it, heaven's not for good people, it's for forgiven people, and God forgives you. Even though you're still, you know, struggling with these sins, you haven't been sanctified in, in, in any way that anyone can actually see, but you repent of your sins. You confess your sins. Yes, you're not a good person, but there's a place in heaven for you. Now, what a doctrine. And if you don't uh, buy into that doctrine, don't worry. You're going to end up in the great white throne, uh, standing before a guy looking at a book with nothing in it. And then you'll be unceremoniously tossed in the lake of fire. So you don't have to worry about any of this anyway. <laughs> Christians, you sound batshit crazy when you talk this way. And that's enough of me talking this way. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.